Hello, I'm Yanis Varoufakis. I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Capet diem. point of reading fiction? Can it tell us anything about the world we live in? I'm John Merrick, and on this episode of Novara FM, I'm joined by the writer and novelist Pankaj Mishra. I first encountered Mishra's work in the early 2010s, following his powerful takedown of Niall Ferguson in the LRB, an essay that was so devastating in its analysis of Ferguson's denials of empire and its crimes that he threatened to sue for libel. Mishra is one of our great critics, both of the delusions of liberalism and of the contemporary novel. He's the author of many books, including An End to Suffering, The Buddha in the World, Age of Anger, A History of the Present, and Bland Fanatics, a brilliant collection of essays on liberals, race, and empire. In this episode, we discuss Mishra's latest novel, Run and Hide, the power of fiction to illuminate the world, what a Marxist fiction might look like, and why those of us who care deeply about social change need to take fiction seriously. Pankaj Mishra, thank you for joining us on Avara FM. Thank you for having me. So your most recent book, Run and Hide, was published last year. Um, it's a return to fiction for you. So over 20 years after you published your last novel, um, which was The Romantics. And the new one follows a group of friends from modest backgrounds um, who meet at a prestigious Indian university two of whom become hedge fund billionaires in the US before getting embroiled in a Wall Street insider trading scandal. While the third, the narrator Arun, a translator of classic Hindi literature, lives in comparative seclusion in a Himalayan village. The novel poses deep questions about class, the cleavages between the East and West, modernity and tradition, ambition and rootedness. These are also the kind of questions that you've been asking in your nonfiction and your essays for the last couple of decades. So why did you decide now to return to fiction? Um, several reasons, actually. But I think probably the most important of them was the realization that nonfiction of the kind that I'd been doing, uh, mostly for periodicals in uh, Anglo-America, was simply unable to capture some of the complexity of this extraordinary experience that Indian society has undergone in the last three decades. Um, you know, a post-colonial society, which resembled other post-colonial societies in, you know, in, in the sense of sharing a collective ethic inherited from the people who led the anti-colonial movement, that society embracing American modes of individualism, of self-expression, and indeed, uh, as we can now see very clearly, militarism. I just didn't think that nonfiction, especially formulaic nonfiction of the kind I was doing for Western periodicals, was able to describe uh, the you know the these the sort of really interesting changes. I mean, there's a there's a phrase of Virginia Woolf, much quoted, about how human character changed uh, on or about 19 or 10. I may be misquoting, but it's, it's it's roughly along these lines. And I think something of this extraordinary transformation happened in uh, in in India in starting the late uh, 1980s, and having been there to witness it. Uh, in, in some sense, also to participate in it, um, also, you know, kind of almost impose a kind of obligation on me to, 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 to write about these changes. Um, first in my fiction, then, you know, um, I, I can also explain why I actually went to nonfiction in the first place. It was mostly an accident. Um, so returning to fiction in fields, you know, has very much felt like 
returning to a place where I started out, a place where I feel more comfortable, and a place where I certainly feel much more empowered to capture and, 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 and write about complex issues. It's interesting that you say that, you know, in a sense, uh, the nonfiction was the accident rather than the return to fiction. Do you want to talk then about your formation, both as a writer, but also kind of more generally? I know you're from a kind of small town uh, Indian background, like the characters in your latest novel. Um, and I know that's kind of, you've, you've written at length about that. There's a, a fantastic essay, if, if readers haven't listened to it, um, haven't read it, um, in the New York Review of Books on the experience of reading um, the great literary critic Edmund Wilson in a, in a kind of small Indian university. Um, and, you know, you talk there a lot about your kind of formation, you know, how this kind of shaped you, how this kind of ex particular experience of modernizing India shaped you as a writer. Do you want to talk about your, your background and how, how you came to this, this world? Yes. Um, you know, I grew up in a uh, small town, India, and, you know, went to provincial, I went to a provincial university and then spent a year in the city of Banaras, where I was exposed to a, an experience, um, I suppose you could call it, of feeling constantly powerless, um, feeling yourself um, humiliated, I think is the word. Uh, and, and I think in, in, in all my work, I've been concerned with this particular experience of humiliation. And I'm often baffled why more people don't talk about it because it seems to me the central experience of many, many people around the world today with obviously, you know, political consequences of the kind that's around us today. But it was something that engaged me right from the time I, you know, started to be aware of the world around me in my late teens, um, going to university, um, growing up really with people from incredibly disadvantaged backgrounds uh, and sharing with them these feelings of of, of uh, helplessness, of impotence, of, of humiliation. And this was due not only to our lower middle class position, but in the case of other people, not in mine, uh, the feelings that arise uh, out of your membership in a low caste community. So, I mean, I suppose, you know, my themes, my subjects were formed at that particular stage, and you know, you know, in a in a in a sense, you don't really stop writing about uh, uh, an experience as crucial, as fundamental as that. Uh, so that's where I I started, and you know, the 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 writers I was reading at the time, a lot of European writers, uh, and indeed uh, the American critic Edmund Wilson, and my attempt was really to try and connect what I was reading to the reality that I was experiencing, that I was part of in a, in, a, in a small town context in India. So the Edmund Wilson essay really came out of that uh, struggle to connect these seemingly disparate things. Um, and it is actually the essay is about my failure at that stage to recognize that, you know, the people around me living in a very corrupt a horribly inequitous society were roughly going through the same sort of emotions that people in, in say, 19th century, mid-19th century France, uh, the, the people that Flaubert, for instance, is describing in his novel Sentimental Education. That's roughly that particular experience that, you know, it's now something that's being experienced by people living in India in the, in the 1980s. Uh, it took a long time for me to make those kinds of connections. And the essay is about that failure and how, you know, uh, someone I knew at university around that time was able to see that because he was so much closer to the experience of uh, deprivation and impotence. I, I, I really think looking back, uh, which I find myself doing more and more often as I grow older, is that those were really my my sort of crucial experiences and I've never really, in a sense, written about anything else. Um, wherever I've gone, you know, even in my travel pieces, uh, whether writing about Indonesia or China, 
it's always been that uh, experience of, uh, you know, the losers of the world, uh, the so-called losers. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating answer. Is um, you know, you talk about Flaubert. I think it's I think it's Lionel Trilling in his essay on um, Lionel Trilling was a, an American essayist and literary critic. In his essay on Henry James, where he talks about um, the young man from the provinces literature, is this is this particular you know um, going from the the nineteenth century novel through you know Stendhal's uh, The Red and the Black through kind of Flaubert, Balzac, and others. This, you know, experience that's kind of deeply implicated into the the novel form of this young man from a kind of lower middle class background going to high society and becoming disillusioned with it. Um, and I think that's you 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 mention all of these novels often in in your nonfiction, but also in your fiction in in Run and Hide as well. They're kind of you know they're they're regular touchstones. So there's something about the experience of modernity then that that lends itself to this kind of fictionalized novel form. Would you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you know. When you think about it, uh, that's really the sort of the experience that most nineteenth-century uh, writers are, are are tackling in their work. They may belong to you know relatively modern societies, like if you're living in England or France, um, or you may you may be living in a you know relatively uh, the word you know. The, the the word that was widely used once upon a time, economically backward society like Russia in the 19th century, where you belong to a tiny intelligentsia, uh, very remote from the the sort of, you know, the peasant masses. Um, but still, you are very close to this particular journey of the provincial into the metropolis and this whole range of feelings, primarily of, uh, you know, helplessness and inferiority and wanting to impose yourself uh, somewhere or other, you know, which is the story of Dostoevsky's Underground Man. And he talks about that in, in, in other contexts too. And of course, the encounter with political ideology, with political ideas in those contexts. But really, it's a, it's a story of social mobility that is extremely fraught, a mobility that's attended by profoundly ambivalent feelings, even when it's successful, especially when it's successful. Um, and I've always felt myself very close to this particular literature because I've just felt that contemporary literature has not covered this experience as much as you know the the, the classics did. There may be there may be good reasons for this, um, but I, I I've thought always that you know this um, experience that the, the the French, the Russians in the nineteenth century describe is so much closer to what large societies like India and China have known in their own trajectory towards social modernization. And there's a there's a political kind of valence to this as well, isn't there? You know, I think Age of Anger, your uh, most recent uh, nonfiction book, is precisely about the kind of the the politics that comes from that feeling of humiliation that you're looking at in you know you trace it from the um, the 19th century kind of novel, you trace it from from before as well from Rousseau, and you trace that right through. There's something about this kind of contemporary anger of the the kind of humiliated classes, whether in in India. The rise of Hindu nationalism, you know, you're looking at kind of ISIS and and the rise of kind of Islamic fundamentalism, um, and also you're looking at the kind of Brexit Trump um, aspect of this as well. You know, this 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 idea that there's a humiliated class, provincial class that doesn't feel kind of accepted by the elites, and then it comes out in kind of political directions as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Actually, it occurs to me that I didn't really answer your previous question about you know how did I sort of start to write um, non-fiction articles. And it was really because, you know, 9-11 happened and I became aware that, you know, the general discourse in Europe and the United States was incredibly, incredibly ignorant. And, and, and you know, obviously, as we, as we can now see, much, much more clearly, profoundly counterproductive. Uh, in that they assumed that this explosion of uh, anger among, you know, in um, among a very large population of, of of Muslims was something 
inherent to Islam. It was something to do with uh, the particular ways in which Islam as a religion has developed and its failure to modernize and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm sure you're very familiar with the arguments that were expressed and sometimes are still expressed. Uh, obviously, we know now better uh, after having experienced various political earthquakes in our own societies that uh, this anger has its source in some other things. Uh, it has to do with injustice. It has to do with uh, historical modes of inequality. It has, to mo it has to do most of all with a consistent uh, feeling of uh, and 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 sort of you know ineradicable feeling sometimes of of uh, of humiliation and so you know armed with my own experience uh, back in early two thousands I was able to write about what was happening in in some Muslim societies and that soon after nine eleven made me seem like some kind of an expert on on terrorism you know experts on terrorism were in great demand during those days so. I was suddenly asked to do more pieces of this kind. So from writing fiction, wanting to write more fiction, I started to write these nonfiction pieces. And also, you know, because I had no money, uh, this was also a way to make a living. And soon I realized that, you know, I was doing nonfiction books. I was doing uh, long form reportage. I was traveling to various countries. And, you know, it was very enjoyable and stimulating to go to places like China in the early 2000s to learn about a new society, a new culture, new to me, um, and to, you know, try and sort of understand it through personal exposure and through obviously reading books. Um, but it took me away, obviously, you know, from the, from, the, from the things I wanted to do most, even though intellectually, of course, you know, the effort I put into understanding uh, some of these different societies and also understanding where so much of this political anger comes from went into the making of a book like Age of Anger, um, where you could, where I could see a longer uh, tradition, a, a, a longer sort of intellectual genealogy of various uh, eruptions of, of uh, authoritarian populism today, that there is, you know, there is a tradition that really does start from uh, the very beginning of the modern era with someone like Rousseau and, you know, a, a, a kind of set of political ideas that are rooted in the experience of exclusion and marginalization and how they can take extreme forms in, in different political contexts. So to kind of return to the, the novel now and the politics of the novel, I think just after Running Hides, your novel was, was published, you were asked to write a piece by the Financial Times kind of reflecting on the experience of writing a novel. Um, it begins with this really kind of excoriating uh, criticism of the, the journalistic boosters of the war on terror. And for that reason, it was turned down by the Financial Times and you ended up publishing it for the, for the London Review of Books. But in this essay, which kind of goes on, it develops into this discussion of what fiction can do and what it can't do. While discussing the, the South African novelist Nadine Gordimer, you write of the this is a quote, uh, the kind of knowledge that only novels can bring. It's a quite an enigmatic phrase. And I think there'll be Navarra FM listeners that, you know, may not read as much fiction as they do nonfiction that might kind of struggle to understand what this actually means. So what do you think that novels can do? What kind of knowledge can they bring that um, perhaps nonfiction can't or can only hint at? Well, um, let me try and answer that perhaps with reference to, you know, what has been happening in, in, in India. I mean, as, as I said, you know, this is a society that was kind of uh, awakened out of a certain kind of lethargic attitude towards the world and towards itself in the, in the, in the late 80s when ideologies um, of Thatcherite, Reaganite, individualism, private enrichment, private self-expansion, all these started to make their way east and to India, obviously to you know China and other countries as well. Um, you really saw very closely at the time uh, how people's private relationships started to change, you know, the way in which people saw themselves in the wider world, in their most intimate relationships with their parents, with their siblings, with their loved ones, with their girlfriends, with their boyfriends, with their partners. Um, and 
you know, I, I, I wrote about consistently, in fact, you know, these changes in India through my travel book. The first book I published was a travel book about uh, the explosion of these new energies in small town, small town India. Uh, and I wrote about how these, you know, how these attitudes had shifted. People had become more, um, let's say, more greedy for the richness of life that they imagined uh, to be existing in, in, you know, in sort of, in, in, in the United States and of course societies who were uh, trying to model themselves on, on, the, on the United States. Um, so a, a kind of fantasy of wealth and fantasy of power. And I saw that, I saw people articulating themselves very clearly about, you know, what they, what they wanted. Um, breaking free from, you know, kind of Indian traditions of austerity, Indian traditions of self-restraint. Um, but there was obviously, you know, so many things that I was missing um, in my nonfiction that I really uh, could not describe, you know, like, for instance, you know, you see now a, 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 a society in India that's becoming increasingly aggressive. And that, you know, that's one journalistic way to describe it. But what it is actually undergoing is or, or seeking is an experience of vitality, you know. So this hyper nationalism, for instance, which is right now being manifested in this whole uh, conflict with Canada, uh, I, I, I'm sure some of your listeners know um, what happened in the last uh, two weeks, where the Canadian Prime Minister accused India of being of 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 being behind the assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. And um, this has led to a massive explosion of hyper-nationalism in India. And, and uh, you know, uh, yesterday was reported that Indian cyber hackers have attacked uh, various websites in, in, in Canada. Um, so this is, you know, this is an international incident and probably for many people, the first sort of revelation of just how militant the mood has become among Indian nationalists. Now, I think... Most people tend to think of this as oh, this is you know a kind of muscle flexing and and um, and, and and sort of a desire to pose like you've finally become uh, the equal of countries like United States and Israel, which can order uh, extrajudicial executions in remote countries. But really, in the end, this is this is uh, an experience of vitalism that people are seeking. And this is something I've been writing about. And again, I could only really talk about it. There's a character in my novel who manifests who this, 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 particular, this particular attitude. Um, I could only really write about something like that, this sort of altered consciousness, uh, this, this sort of embrace of uh, ideologies of Sex self-expansion and and you know in this case uh, now increasingly ethnic racial uh, chauvinism and connected two previous feelings of humiliation and powerlessness. Um, there was no way in my nonfiction that I could make those kinds of connections. Um, so I, I I mean I remain convinced that it's only fiction that can describe this very, very complex experience of, you know, moving from feelings of powerlessness to, to sort of indulging this, this, this stroking, this, this grand feeling of, of power and that you finally made it, uh, that you finally uh, dominant in a way that you always wanted to be. And there are obviously different ways in which you then impose yourself in your private relations, your relationship ships with women in particular, they're impacted, but it, it also has an impact on, obviously, as we can see now clearly, on geopolitical relations. Um, so I think, I mean, it's it's that particular experience of ambiguity, it's the experience of muddle, I think I would call it, um, something that only really fiction, especially the novel, can capture, um, that finally kind of led me back to 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 uh, writing fiction yeah i think i i completely agree with you the kind of power of, of fiction to to um 
kind of capture that model of of individual existence. But you know, I think conversely, I think a lot of of um, people on the left would say that, in a sense, uh, you know, reading novels, writing novels is is you know the, the best kind of a distraction, or the worst kind of a you know a, a, a kind of a nice hobby or something. And I think this same kind of criticism has been placed on the novel in a positive light by kind of liberal critics from like Lionel Trilling, this American critic, who basically says that, you know, the novel is in effect a kind of inoculation against radical enthusiasm, against radical politics. It, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, I think, uh, and someone like Zadie Smith would be a contemporary example of this, that it's it's about nuance. It's about kind of humans living in the round. It shows kind of a, a natural world, which is, or a, a social world, which is, um, you know, kind of rounded and whole and holistic. And therefore, you know, you can't have that enthusiasm, that kind of passion that you need, the commitment that you need for radical politics, that in some ways that it, it's kind of liberal subjects growing up. You know, how would you kind of counter that? Is there a way that you can think about commitment and the novel, politics and the novel kind of together? And and, and how, can you think about kind of, I suppose, what a, what a Marxist or a kind of socialist novel would be? That's, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, you know, my... My sort of instinctive feeling, and has been for a long time, is that the novel is, it's, a, it's essentially a conservative art form. Um, and everything you've just said uh, perhaps can be enlisted as an argument for it being a conservative art form. That the teaching of nuance, the teaching of uh, subtlety in human relationships, uh, the sense that there is more muddle than conviction, uh, more muddle than truth in most uh, human souls. Uh, this can lend itself to a certain passive attitude towards the world. No, 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 no question. And, you know, obviously the novel, the modern novel has uh, unmistakably bourgeois origins. And and you know it it cannot really be truly be separated from that uh, those those particular origins. You know it's a it's a way in which the bourgeoisie learns to look at itself, to appraise itself in a you know somewhat less flattering way than let's say you know most political ideologies or nationalist ideologies uh, would present to you. So it's it's a it's a form of self-examination, maybe a form of self-criticism, but it's certainly not a program for political change. Perhaps, you know, quite the contrary. It's, uh, it's, it, it pushes back against the possibility of any kind of radical change by insisting that human nature is fundamentally, you know, it, it, it's simply not uh, made for any kind of consistent political reform. Um, I think, you know, you could very easily draw that kind of lesson from uh, the novel's 200-year-old history. You know, I've been reading, I may be speaking on a tangent here, I've been reading quite a bit of Soviet fiction recently. Um, I grew up reading a lot of these Soviet novels because the books from the Soviet Union were widely available in India when I was growing up, and they were very cheap. So you bought them and you read them, which is not something you could do with a lot of novels published in Western Europe and the United States. Uh, so I ended up reading a lot of people who are completely obscure now, although still very famous in, in, in you know, the former Soviet Union. Um, Konstantin Fedin, uh, there's a writer called Ilya Ehrenberg. And I'm also starting to think that the label socialist realism cannot really be properly applied to their works. They're obviously working under extreme pressures. Even some like Sholokov, you know, who won the Nobel Prize for Quiet Close the Dawn. Um, even someone like him, who was very close to the establishment, uh, almost a kind of Stalinist, cannot really be uh, classified in that way because uh, they're obviously trying to write to a prescription, but... I think there is something about the form, something about the form that makes them disregard many of the prescriptions of, of socialist realism. And even in sometimes in the most clumsy portraits, and actually, you know, Vasily Grossman, who's been embraced by uh, the Western intelligentsia, 
um, he's very much a Soviet novelist. You know, he, he's quite clumsy. Uh, his novels are, are, are not to be recommended for their, for their formal um, uh, uh, sort of beauty. Uh, they're, they're quite awkward. Uh, the characters are kind of mouthpieces. But there is something about the situation that they're describing. There's something about the pressures these people are living under, which is nevertheless conveyed. Um, so here is an instance of an explicitly political novel that manages to convey a certain state of consciousness uh, that it was not certainly not supposed to convey. Um, so I think, you know, despite being a, a, a conservative form, it can still break through, you know, certain limitations, uh, certain kind of built-in limitations and, 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 and do something that's, that's, that's interesting. I need, to, I need to think a little bit more about this, uh, these Soviet novels and, you know, what they're trying to do and their failures and their achievements. But I've really been intrigued by this, this, this particular experience of reading them. I mean, one of the things that the kind of contemporary bourgeois novel doesn't, you know, doesn't contain is 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 anything about class. I think it's one of the kind of blind spots of the contemporary novel is that you know class is is more or less kind of forgotten in it, and it's something that your work in particular has has tried to kind of push back against, both in your novels and in your essays as well. It was a, a fantastic essay you wrote on the um, the American novelist Elizabeth Strout a couple of years ago in the the New York Review of Books. Um, and you talk about in that the, the bizarre ignorance about class, um, which has flourished at least partly because the cruel and all-pervasive reality of class stratification, once a staple of writers, um, came to be obscured in recent decades. And you know, you talk about how it's kind of replaced with this myth of of social mobility, this kind of universal social mobility. You also mention in that same essay, Elena Ferranti who I think is usually read as a kind of a novelist of, of female friendship, but is, you know, you read her work, it's, it's the, the Neapolitan trilogy is, is a book about class as much as anything else. They are books about class. Absolutely. Um, do you see any other kind of contemporary writers or, or writers who are kind of looking at the kind of idea of class and, and, and how do you think class should be or, or, or could be represented in the novel in a, in a kind of more fulsome way? Well, I mean, I think uh, learning from uh, the 19th century classics would be one great step forward because, as I said earlier, this is one subject that they could not stop writing about. Um, in those sort of early modernizing societies, um, that was really the, you know, the fundamental social fact. Uh, so as a writer, you could not avoid it. There was no way you could you could avoid it. Obviously, it's easier now, has been in recent decades, to avoid it because we're all supposed to have attained a certain classlessness. And, you know, obviously, massive changes in our popular culture, which has become more egalitarian, has allowed many people to feel that we've attained a kind of, we are all living in a classless society. The reality, obviously, is continues to be grimly different. Uh, you know, societies like uh, the one both of, us, both of us are living in right now are arguably even more stratified by class uh, than they were, let's say, in the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s. You know, I mean, in the way a certain class has accumulated a whole lot of intellectual capital, cultural capital, and uses that to perpetuate its, its uh, hegemony. And I think we need writers to to kind of demystify their particular ideologies and, and show the persistence of class and the persistence of class injuries and class wounds. And, you know, that's something I was writing about when I wrote that piece uh, on uh, Elizabeth Strout's novels because, you know, I was looking at reviews of her previous works. You know, she has published uh, several, several novels, I think nine or ten so far. And, you know, so there's a kind of quite a lot of critical attention that's been devoted to it. And I was amazed to discover that, you know, hardly any of these reviews talk about uh, the, f the, the one thing that she's obsessed with in novel after novel, which is what class or belonging to a lower middle class or a lower class does to you, does to your sense of uh, self-worth and, 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 you know, how even when you're extremely successful, when you've made it, uh, when you've achieved the American dream, you're still haunted by your early 
traumatic experiences of deprivation and inequality. Um, so, you know, those were the things I wanted to focus on when I wrote about it. And interestingly, I, you know, I, I received an email from her saying that this is the first piece that really gets what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do. And that, again, sort of confirmed to me just like how uh, weirdly uh, neglectful we've become of this, of this sort of issue and, you know, how um, perhaps because of, you know, the, the kind of class position of most writers and critics, um, which now, you know, when you look at the United States, most of the people who are publishing today have come through the university creative writing school route. Mm. And in that process, even if they come from a relatively deprived class, um, they've kind of shed many of their experiences, many of their attitudes, previous attitudes, and, and become more kind of, may become professionalized writers. Most critics too come through that particular process. So, you know, people from, let's say, non-bourgeois backgrounds, I think there were many, many more writers from those backgrounds back in the 19th century and the early 20th century, even, even after 1945, you know, in, in societies like Italy and Spain, I can see uh, very clearly, you know, writers who belong to those backgrounds and, and wrote about that particular transition. There's a Spanish writer I rate very highly who's writing today, uh, Antonio Munoz Molina, who comes from a small town and has consistently written about that that particular experience of, of, of sort of being in the metropolis uh, uh, as a as a as a kind of you know insecure provincial, another great Spanish writer, contemporary who passed away a few years ago, a Marxist by political persuasion, Rafael Chirbes, uh, again obsessed with this this particular issue. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's weirdly gone gone uh, missing in Anglo American. Sometimes when it does appear, uh, it's 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 a it's a grotesque caricature, like Martin Ame is trying to write about class and ending up, uh, you know, being horribly condescending to the people he's, he's, uh, he's writing about. Um, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a weird, weird absence, perhaps, you know, because we've now lived through two political shocks, Brexit and Trumpism, uh, which are a direct consequence of class divides in uh, England, in Britain and the United States. Perhaps writers are going to pay more attention to this aspect, and perhaps critics will be also trained to, you know, look at this in the in the works of fiction, the review. I mean, I, I found that in the responses to my own work, there's hardly ever any acknowledgement that I'm writing about both caste and class all the time, all the time. Yeah, it's it's astounding, really. And like you say about Strout, it's not it's not necessarily kind of a, a subtle um, analysis. In in some ways, you know, it, it's class is front and center in her work and it, it's it's wild that um critics haven't picked up on that or kind of haven't made more of it in the past it's it's it, you know when i read it that's what i it's what i see kind of straight away and same with your work as well and um, maybe we should kind of shift on to kind of the question of of caste that you just brought up there as well and um, i know in rudden hyde it, it is you know a really kind of central aspect and, and there's a, an incredibly powerful scene at the start of the novel where one of the characters, uh, Vivendra, who's a, a Dalit, you know, a, a, a kind of would have been called a, an untouchable, is forced by one of the, uh, the the kind of other students at the university to, to kind of to to lick the anus of of another character, Brahmin character, a part of ritual humiliation. Um, and this, you know, the kind of um, the humiliations that caste enacts on people is is one of the central themes of the novel. And um, what role do you think that? caste plays in contemporary Indian society, you know, it, it's, it's still there, it's still very present. And it's inarguably, it's kind of got, you know, anti-Dalit, anti-caste violence has got kind of worse in the last kind of 30, 40 years. Um, and, and what is its relationship to, to class? It, it's, you know, it's an incredibly complex issue and it's, it's um, something that's kind of deeply pervades a society. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I mean, caste is very simply the central pathology of, of uh, in Indian society. And all the distortions, all the problems and, and ailments, um, social ailments that you can see in India can be directly 
connected to the persistence of caste inequalities. I mean, even Hindu nationalism, there's a direct connection to this. I mean, Hindu nationalism and demonizing religious minorities, uh, Christians and Muslims, and now increasingly Sikhs, what it is really trying to do is to, in some sense, diffuse the increasing assertiveness of the formerly untouchable castes, the, the, the Dalits, um, which you know have been politically far, far more assertive uh, than they have been for a very long time in recent, in recent decades. And they were, in, in many ways, the new element in Indian electoral politics in the last three decades. Hindu nationalism, which is really uh, the ideology of upper caste Hindus, a way to perpetuate their, their dominance, uh, their hegemony over Indian society and culture, is fundamentally a response to Dalit assertiveness. Obviously, you cannot take on directly um, Dalit assertiveness or, or, to, or to, you know, assert, you cannot directly uh, assert upper caste hegemony in the same way you've been doing for centuries and centuries. So it's, it's, it's now dressed up in this ideology of meritocracy that we now have a very fluid, uh, relatively fluid class system whereby Dalits, by embracing the ideology of the free market, the ideology of neoliberalism, can achieve uh, liberation from this you know, incredibly cruel hierarchy that they've been part of for such a long time. So this is the, this is the sort of pseudo promise, as it were, of, of Hindu nationalism to Dalits. But as we know, meritocracy itself is a fraud. Neoliberalism perpetuates new inequalities, but nevertheless, I think its persuasive power is is is, is immense. Uh, we've seen this in so many contexts in in Western Europe and the United States. It can it can keep people mesmerized in a state of uh, mental and 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 emotional bondage for a for a very long time. Uh, and I think you know that's been also broadly the effect in in India that many people have allowed themselves to think that yes, this is the way forward that we are finally moving towards a, uh, a society where everyone will have the opportunity to become rich, to become powerful, and that's the way we get rid of this 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 older social uh, social hierarchy. So. This is, this is one of the ways, I mean, there are so many others, uh, we don't have enough time to go into them, but this is the, one of the ways in which caste and class intersect in, 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 in contemporary India. One of the ways in which an upper caste Hindu formation manages to persuade a substantial part of the Dalit population mm. to remain on its side. Mm. Um, what is the kind of the situation politically in, in India today. You've kind of hinted at the some of these questions that kind of deeply implicated in, in, in contemporary Indian politics and society about Hindu nationalism, you know, violence against kind of religious and, and political minorities. Um, and yet, you know, Navendra Modi continues to, to kind of ride high in the polls, incredibly popular. Hindu nationalism seems to be kind of getting kind of deeper roots into Indian society. Um, is there any kind of hope beyond this for, for something different? Is there any kind of hope in, in India for a, a new kind of resurgence of, of, a, of a left there, perhaps? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, one reason why um, something like Hindu nationalism will always find itself challenged in a, in a country like India it's because it's primarily, as I said, an upper caste formation. And it's also primarily a North Indian formation. It represents uh, the regional, it represents, it represents the, the, the sort of the numerical majority of Hindi speakers in, which, are, which are all mostly concentrated in the North of India. Um, and it's failed so far to attract large number of followers in, in states like Kerala, for instance, which has had, you know, a, a communist government for, for, for many decades. I mean, it's been voted out in the past, but it's, you know, it comes back to power. So that remains a, a, a you know, a state within a very literate population, very politically aware that 
really remains completely, almost completely immune to the siren song of, of, of Hindu nationalism. There are other states in, in South India. You know, South India has some of the richest states in, in India, uh, some of the most uh, literate uh, populations. Um, and there again, uh, the BJP, Narendra Modi's party, has failed to make consistent uh, gains. So, you know, not to mention West Bengal, which was a communist state for a, for a very long time. And again, the BJP is, has failed to gain uh, large uh, uh, chunks of voters there. So it's, it, is, it is being challenged. Uh, I think the problem is that um, under Narendra Modi, this government has resorted to a kind of takeover, a capture of state institutions, of institutions like the Supreme Court, of the military, uh, not to mention the media, which is really truly unprecedented. Mm. Um, so India is moving very fast from being a kind of formal democracy, you know, democracy in the most kind of nominal fashion in the sense of having regular elections, to becoming uh, a, a sort of, you know, a despotism, really, um, with all the major state institutions controlled by an intensely ideological movement. And let's not forget, this is, the, this is an ideological movement that is directly inspired by European fascisms of the 1920s and 30s. I mean, it's, you know, people talk about, is Trump fascist? Is fascism coming to America? Not once do they pause to reflect that there is actually a party, an organization in the classic fascist mold running one of the biggest states in the world today. The world's largest population is headed by a government and an organization that is in directly inspired by Italian fascists and, 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 and German Nazis. Um, but again, you know, I think um, Western nations right now, they're desperate to have some kind of a counterweight against China in this new Cold War. So India has become the great white hope of uh, Western centrist, Western liberals. Um, Biden, Joe Biden, uh, investing heavily in this idea that India is, you know, as a democracy shares American values and will be a reliable ally against Russian and Chinese autocracies. You, you know that kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. So it's it's um, it's it's a uh, it's it's something that is of Great benefit, obviously, to Narendra Modi as he faces elections uh, next year, you know, to have Western leaders participating in his re-election campaign. I mean, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful. And that's how it's seen by many Indians today. Uh, but that's where we are. And you know, again, we should not be surprised because obviously in the old Cold War, the first Cold War, the original Cold War, were many uh, horrible regimes being supported uh, openly by the free world, simply because they were useful in the battle against Soviet communism. So something similar is happening today. So let me finish by asking you, what are you working on at the minute? Are you working on more fiction or, or further non-fiction work? I'm actually sort of, uh, at this moment, I feel like I'm in between books. I have a book of essays coming out uh, next year. It's a book of essays about politics and literature and the way they intersect. So that's keeping me a little busy. I mean, I have to uh, put together the manuscript, write two fresh essays, write an introduction. And, you know, that's actually set me thinking about a whole range of uh, literature that I've not previously been acquainted with in, in, in sort of, you know, last couple of years, I've been reading a lot more in, in Spanish. And that's really opened my eyes to the richness and variety of uh, the, the literature that exists in that language. Um, and I want to bring at least some of this new experience and some of this new exposure into this book of essays that I'm doing. I do want to go back to writing fiction, but again, it won't be, it cannot be uh, the novel like the one I published a couple of years ago. It has to be something different. And that's always a challenge to find a new form, uh, something that you know accommodates uh, what you've been thinking about, what you've been obsessed with in recent years. Um, so I think it's gonna take me some some time, at least, you know, another year or so before I sit down to to write this new book. 
So who are the who are the writers that you're looking at in this this new book you've got coming out? This book of essays. So there are pieces that I've already published as introductions. Uh, there's a Turkish novelist called Tanpinash. There's a there's an Egyptian novelist called Wagi Gali, um, who published in back in this back in the 1960s. Tanpinash also roughly around that around that period. There are um, Indian Indian novelists that I'm looking at. Uh, there are also some uh, iconic American writers that I'm looking at. Uh, you know, David Foster Wallace, um, Jennifer Egan. Uh, there is a, there's a piece on Zadie Smith in it. Um, but sort of looking at them from this this sort of particular perspective of just how alert they are to social and political conflicts in their societies and you know what do they what do they make of it um and also you know obviously dealing with this whole question of politics in literature which to many anglo-american readers i think particularly in the united states uh, they find it all very baffling that you know politics should make its way into literature and there's obviously a great divide between you know people like juno diaz uh, and people who come from you know, very damaged societies who cannot but write about politics mm. in, 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 in their fiction and kind of the mainstream uh, American tradition, which is very influenced by this whole Cold War uh, tradition of keeping politics very carefully out of literature. Um, and obviously, you know, there are, there are whole books now about how creative writing institutes, creative writing schools encouraged a certain kind of formal experimentation encouraged a certain kind of apolitical writing. Um, so I, I, I think the mainstream American tradition uh, of fiction is still deeply informed by that, that, that particular emphasis. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking a little bit at that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mix of things, but really primarily, there's also a piece on Doris Lessing. Uh, there's a piece on Nadine Gordima. There's also a piece on Obama. I'm really interested in how Obama has invented himself as a kind of uh, literary critic, uh, offering guidance on what his followers should be reading. Um, this is those lists that he does at the end of the year. The, he, the lists he does, and also in his own memoir, he, he presents himself as a writer, as an author. So I'm sort of looking at some of these claims to literary authorship. Um, you know what? Do, what does it mean for the most, the world's most powerful man, to call, to claim to be a writer in the literary, in the literary mode? Fantastic. Um, thank you very much. It was a fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed that. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.